and I made it to my home place. I found triumph of the will, where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a I'm Henry. This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the podcast, BT, Danny, and I are three leftist combat veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and provide some much-needed historical context and examination. Good morning, listeners. We've got a, a whole bunch of different stuff today for you guys, uh, starting off with a few headlines. A Navy veteran has settled a lawsuit with the VA for $950,000. The veteran received surgery from a do- Dr. Alan Coslow for a blocked artery in his leg that left him with long-term severe pain and leg weakness. Later, the veteran found negative information regarding Dr. Kozlow's uh, practice records from Des Moines, Iowa, through a Google search, which included the VA's decision to hire him in South Carolina, where the veteran received surgery. Quote, the case is one of several nationally in which the VA hospitals have hired physicians who were disciplined in other states. For example, the Iowa City VA Hospital acknowledges in 2017 that an improperly hired neurosurgeon John Henry Schneider even though Schneider's Wyoming medical license had been revoked over malpractice allegations. Now, Koslow did not have a South Carolina medical license when the Columbia VA hired him, but he also didn't need one. Under federal rules, a doctor who has a valid license in any state can practice in VA hospitals across the nation. VA hospitals are not supposed to hire physicians whose licenses have been suspended or revoked. Koslow's Iowa license was on probation. So I plan to keep an eye on this subject. It's something that has been a continual problem with the VA as to what standards they use for their doctors and who it is that gets to decide what standards are followed. Um, They definitely need to alter rules like this to prevent people from administering care who shouldn't be giving veterans or really anyone care. Um, And add this to the pile of the many reasons veterans don't trust the care they receive at the VA. How is that even possible that it's not required? You, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, don't, I don't understand how it's not required to be fully licensed to be, you know, I, I just, it seems so illogical to me that any organization, let alone the one that's charged with our, you know, our veterans, which is one of the largest, you know, non-direct um, military appropriations in the budget. I mean, how that wouldn't be at a minimum a requirement that these be the most you know, the top people in their field with all the qualifications they need. I mean, it just seems absolutely ludicrous. It does, it does. And and absolutely terrifying to find out that the VA could have done something when it hired the asshole and simply didn't. There wasn't, and, and it's something that you hear not just in VA circles, but with Medicare docs and stuff like that, that it's find out later on that this guy operated on people for however many years and People knew he was shit, but nobody got rid of him. And so the, the, the questions about how doctors are disciplined and whether or not doctors who have been suspended 
by their state's medical association should even be hired. I mean, I don't think everything should be held against them, but there needs to be a line to where, okay, this person has enough flags in their record. There's no way they should be a doctor, let alone a government hired one. Yeah, I mean, totally agree. Um, keep an eye on this story. Uh, I have a feeling it's not going to be the last. And you're right that every time something like this comes to light, all it does is further, you know, disturb veterans and turn them sour against the VA. And, and you know, it's cool and it's funny to bash the VA. You know, it's it just becomes a, a part of life as a veteran. But really, it's it's not okay. I mean, we, we, we should be... Uh, the veterans should be very pleased with the care they receive, you know, Absolutely. and it shouldn't become a joke. It shouldn't become a common joke to to, to, to talk about VA care and, and consider it, you know, a contradiction in terms. So, yeah, let, let, let's uh, let's watch this and, and wait for the next one. OK, but we need to publicize it and uh, raise our voices to the high heavens. That's the only way there's going to be change. I'm hoping there there will be. I'm hoping there really will be. So, God, I feel like every time I do headlines, I've got at least something to say about either Yemen or uh, Afghanistan or Syria, and I'm like, I'm, or Israel. I'm getting tired of it, but here we are in Afghanistan again, and, and I have to mention this piece of news from the headlines. Um, you've heard me uh, talk about you've, – you've, you've read some of my work about green-on-blue attacks and how they destroy trust in the, the American military mission in Afghanistan, the way the Taliban's use of these green on blue attacks uh, is strategically brilliant. And of course, by green on blue, I mean when uh, supposed ostensible Afghan allies, usually police or soldiers, turn their guns or grenades on their advisors or their trainers, okay, on the Americans. Uh, this, this has been a, a big problem. And in 2012, 13, 14, 15, it was like the biggest problem. And it's, it's, ta it's tapered off to some extent as the number of American soldiers has decreased. But, you know, it still happens. And uh, a couple days ago, okay, um, there was something unique, which was a green on blue on green attack. What does that mean? That means an attack of Afghan soldiers on American soldiers who then attacked back, okay, who fought back against the green, which is the Afghan soldiers. And so what happened is that uh, in, in a relatively remote part of Afghanistan, an American patrol or a combined American and Afghan special forces patrol came under significant small arms fire from an Afghan security forces checkpoint, basically a little stronghold, a little strong point, small base. Uh, the fire did not uh, decrease. Uh, the Americans felt that even after having been identified themselves as Americans, they were still being fired at. So they, they couldn't trust that the Afghan checkpoint was going to stop firing at them. Uh, the, the level and intensity of that fire was such that they requested and it was approved. OK, this is hard to get an airstrike approved sometimes. It was they requested and got approved an airstrike on said Afghan security forces strong point. You know, and the airstrike hits, and uh, a number, a significant number, several uh, Afghan security force members were killed. Um, on the surface, this is just a ludicrous story, right? On the surface, this reads like 
an exceptional story. And, and in one sense, it is. This doesn't happen all the time. Okay, It doesn't always go from green on blue to green on blue to green with this level of intensity, but it did this time. But to me, this is a microcosm that's very indicative of the macrocosm of the absurdity of the American war in Afghanistan. How did we get to this place? Where in our 18th year of perpetual war, we can't even trust that the people we're supposed to be allied with won't shoot at us. And they can't even trust that we won't drop a bomb on their fucking head if necessary. It is off the rails crazy. It is loony bin crazy that we're even attempting this mission anymore. How many times have I told the listeners, the readers, anyone who will listen that the Taliban is stronger today than it was 17, 18 years ago? That in itself is an indictment of the war effort. It means that every strategy we tried didn't work. And we're out of strategy, and we're basically out of soldiers. You know, there's no, there's no political will anymore to put 150, 200,000 soldiers in the ground. We tried that, and it didn't fix things. It's just mildly limited violence for a short temporary period. That's all it did. It was a tactical pause. It's all it would ever be. But the problem is when you do that, you lose thousands of Americans and uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of Afghans, usually civilians. The bottom line is, look, when you read about this green on blue on green strike, please don't just shake your head and say foolish Afghans. Please shake your head, get angry and say foolish Americans for continuing this ill-advised, unwinnable war. And, 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 and don't forgive this government for perpetuating the war because the Trump administration has choices. They have had opportunities to pull out. They've even indicated that they want to, or at least the president has, but they're still there. Troops are still there. And you know what? Somebody, somebody's son, somebody's husband or wife is going to be the last American soldier to die in Afghanistan. I don't know when that will be. My guess is it'll be in the late 2020s. But whenever that is, someone's going to be the last to die for a mistake. And, uh, man, I wouldn't want to be the officer who knocks on that door and tells the mom or the wife or the husband um, that it was their loved one who was the last to die. Because I sure as shit couldn't explain to them what the hell we're doing. And this latest incident is only the most recent proof of the essential absurdity of never-ending counterinsurgency in the greater Middle East. And that's all I have to say about that. <clears throat> the first ambush I went through in Iraq was began at an Iraqi police checkpoint. Um, I only say that because it's important that people know that in these kind of wars that the enemy is far closer to the people than we have ever been. And so those, those connections that get made, you know, if people become friendly with the United States or they're friendly with Iran and they hate the United States, that, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, what I mean is about loyalty, is about combat level of loyalty in terms of people trying to fight for what they believe in. How do we tell people not to fight against us, Danny? How does how do the people that might still believe that those are worthy missions do that? And and I already had the thought in my brain before you said it. I am terrified of the idea of what you mentioned about the last the last soldier, the last Marine to die in Afghanistan. 
Um, it's a very disturbing thought. Yeah, I mean, that's a, you asked an important question. How do we get them to stop hating us? You know, there's really two schools of thought on that, right? There's the fucking dumb school of thought, for lack of a better word. But no, it's the neoconservative or and neoliberal viewpoint, which is that they hate us for our freedoms. They hate us because we're Christian. They hate us because they're jihadi monsters, yada, yada, yada. I mean, some of them are jihadi monsters, but not, you know, this because, whole idea that, that that's... Not because we invaded their home and killed their family members or anything like that. It's Ding, it's, ding, ding. That's the second yeah, school of thought, yeah, which is yeah. the intelligence school of thought, which is the generally leftist school of thought, or at least libertarian, that you and I hold. And that is that the greatest motivator of violence against America is the presence of American military troops in the Middle East. That's it. Yep. That's what motivated bin Laden. That's what continues to motivate fucking every single leader of every single organization in the greater Middle East and Northern Africa. And it's going to continue to be the case until we realize that everything we've done, $6 trillion, 7,000 soldiers' lives, 500,000 civilian lives, 500,000 foreign lives, 240,000 of which at least were civilians. Everything we've done and all those costs have been ultimately counterproductive. We live in a less safe world than we did on September 10th, 2001. Not a safer world, a more dangerous world. Okay, And the State Department statistics back that up. Year after year, we just ignore the matter on peril. So I, I, look, whatever happens in Afghanistan, and it'll be ugly when it will be ugly when we leave. It is going to be a fucking mess. Okay, I'm a realist. I'm a fatalist, if anything. But I promise you one thing. Whatever's going to happen when we leave will happen anyway. Yeah. It will happen no matter when we leave. 6,000, 8,000, 14,000, 15,000, 400,000 Americans cannot, in the long run, change that outcome. It's going to be an Afghan solution to an Afghan problem. And as such, it's going to be ugly and muddy, just like the villages I walked in. Accept it. Don't throw good money and good lives at that. No. Don't do it. Obama used to say don't do stupid shit all the while he was doing stupid shit. But I actually like the phrase don't do stupid shit as a strategy. I mean it sounds simplistic, but fuck, apply that to everything we do, and you know what we would do? Less. We'd do less. That's the answer to all of this. That's the fucking million-dollar answer to every question in the greater Middle East. What should America do? What's Danny's answer? Less. I don't even care what it is. Less. Do less. Do less of that. It's like that scene in Forgetting Sarah Marshall where fucking Paul Rudd is like is trying to teach uh, what's his name to uh, to surf, and he's telling him do less, do less, you know. And eventually, he's just lying on the fucking board, and it's hysterical. But seriously, America would be better off lying on the board. Watch Forgetting Sarah Marshall. That's my foreign policy for the Middle East. No, I uh, I guess I, I I think about you and I banging our heads back here. And it's 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 hard to, to put those two thoughts together because they don't they don't have at all similar outcomes. But I'm just I'm just tired of the loss of, of life everywhere, especially foreign life. We 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 buy into the violent violence, but they don't. So I feel like Americans buy into the violence. I don't know that they do. I... Right. No, I I think I think you're right. Um We'll, you know, we'll see what happens in uh, Afghanistan, but but stay tuned, folks. This latest absurd incident will not be the last, and uh, and that's a national tragedy. That's an international tragedy, quite frankly. 
So uh, moving on to our next headline here. Um, Republican Senator Martha McCalley recently admitted to being raped while she was on active duty in the Air Force. She shared uh, this during a Hill, uh, a Hill hearing on sexual assault. I was preyed upon and then raped by a superior officer. That was Senator Martha McSally. As NPR's Quill Lawrence reports, McSally is pushing military leaders to change a culture that has struggled with this problem for years. Arizona Republican Martha McSally has been called an Air Force legend. First woman to fly in combat, first woman to command a combat squadron, and then a voice in Congress promoting women in uniform. She stunned a panel of witnesses, including rape survivors, when she told her own story. So, like you, I am also a military sexual assault survivor. But unlike so many brave survivors, I didn't report being sexually assaulted. Like so many women and men, I didn't trust the system at the time. I blamed myself. I was ashamed and confused. I thought I was strong, but felt powerless. McSally referred to more than one assailant during her 26 years in the military. When she did approach her command many years later, she was re-traumatized. I was horrified at how my attempt to share generally my experiences were handled. I almost separated from the Air Force at 18 years over my despair. Like many victims, I felt the system was raping me all over again. Studies show the rate of sexual assault in the military, especially for women, hasn't significantly improved since McSally left the Air Force in 2010. Some are pushing for a change in the military code of justice to take rape cases away from commanding officers. But McSally says she wants commanders held responsible. We must allow, we must demand that commanders stay at the center of the solution and live up to the moral and legal responsibilities that come with being a commander. That raises the question whether commanders will be any better now than when she was in the Air Force. Former Army Colonel Ellen Herring with the Service Women's Action Network had this exchange with McSally. Removing commanders from the decision-making process sends the signal that there are some, some crimes that are so severe that commanders have no place in deciding if, when, or how they are prosecuted. So that's why I think that it's important to move commanders who I, I don't have the same confidence in their skills or abilities as, as you yeah, do. Yeah, thanks, Colonel Herring. I mean, I... Again, I appreciate the perspectives of everybody on this panel. Um, I respectfully disagree. But McSally's Democratic colleague, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, has pushed for years to remove rape cases from the chain of command. If you don't believe your commander is going to have your back because they're the assailant, then you don't necessarily believe his boss or his boss is going to have your back because of that chain. So from a survivor perspective, we've heard over and over again that the reason you take it out of the chain of command is because you want someone who is actually trained to make the decision, a technical decision. McSally pointed to improvements that have been made. The military now has a special victims council who represents sexual assault victims' interests in court, something that is lacking in many civilian courts. But she says the change has to be in American culture. How do we ensure that that culture is one of respect and honor and dignity to include everyone, men and women, uh, not being assaulted, not being retaliated against, not being harassed, and everything on the continuum of harm. Um, Danny, this is something you and I have discussed in the podcast before, the idea that sexual assault crimes in the military should be investigated by an outside agency or board, taking the chance for retaliation by the chain of command down considerably. Um, and while I do feel the system needs to punish commanders who don't appro act appropriately, 
continue to include them in a process where their actions can cause more harm is a, is a no-go for me. Go ahead, Danny. I just wrote about this um, in my article that some of you may have uh, previewed and then um, and then read this week mm. on Truthdig about my time in inpatient treatment for PTSD, depression, anxiety, alcohol, a whole bunch of things. Um, when I served in CAV units my whole career until the very end, um, not gays weren't allowed, and, and of course women weren't allowed. So I, I actually served with very few women. Um, the exception to that was when I um, when I taught at West Point, which you know about 25% of my students now were female because the academy started to let a lot in. But the point is, I didn't know a whole lot of women in the military. So for me, the sexual assault epidemic was always an academic issue. It was something I studied and read about. It wasn't something I felt viscerally. Um, at West Point, that changed to a certain extent when I had a couple of, um, of victims, of survivors in my uh, classes, but one of whom was very open with me about it um, to a staggering degree. Uh, but then I went to Arizona for the last 30 days, a whole month of February. Um, at least 30% of the veterans there were women. And I can tell you with certainty, because I was counting, Okay, because I'm an observer of such things and I'm a writer. Um, 50% of them or more reported a, a sexual assault, not harassment, assault. I think 100% reported some sort of a harassment to me. 50% of these women in treatment have been sexually assaulted, which is about right because statistically it's one in four according to recent studies. One in four women report a sexual assault during some time in their military career. One in four? What the fuck? If that was the crime rate in a major city? The National Guard would be called out. Think about that. Think about that. The worst cities in America have a murder rate, okay? Murder and rape rates are usually pretty similar, okay? Had a murder rate, uh, has murder rates of like 20 or 30 per 100,000. Per 100,000. One in four? Insane. The stories I heard, I can't repeat because they're horrifying and because they are private. But uh, I can tell you that these, these women who served their country were, were victimized and in many cases absolutely devastated and destroyed by, um, by these sexual assaults. And so it's not surprising to me that this woman um, came out and said she was sexually assaulted by a superior officer. It often is a superior um, because they use power leverage in order to uh, achieve their sexual triumphs. Um, but one thing I actually disagree with her about, and, and not in a bad way, she said, um, unlike most of the women, uh, I didn't report it. Actually, statistics say that she's actually in the majority, that, that more don't report it still than do, um, which is an indictment of the system, isn't it? Um, if, if women still don't feel comfortable going to their chain of command, fuck, half the time the chain of command is involved in the sexual assault, right, in one way or the other, either in the cover-up or in the... Uh, uh, actual attack. Um, if they don't feel comfortable reporting, then something's still wrong with our culture. Something's still wrong with the system. And that's why I said in my latest article that maybe Kirsten Gillibrand, right, running for president now, maybe Kirsten Gillibrand's right. She's the one that put that bill forward, fuck, six, eight years ago, saying we got to take sexual assault investigations out of the chain of command and put them into an outside observer, okay, some sort of, some sort of civilian review board. Now, my peers, the company commanders of the world, which is the last major command I had, the company commanders of the world 
guard their authority over the UCMJ like it's their fucking daughter's virginity. Okay, so they hate Gillibrand for what she said. They are terrified of losing control over any investigation into anything that happens to their soldiers because they want to handle it at their level, the lowest level, and they believe that it contributes to the good discipline of, of a unit. But look, this is off the rails. It's gotten out of control. It's beyond our ability to control. It's too big. Too many of us are implicated. Okay, Not us as commanders necessarily, although sometimes, but too much of the chain of command, too much of the leadership has become implicated in these uh, in these investigations, and I'm just not certain that the status quo uh, can hold, and that at least until these statistics drop, at least until we see meaningful success in higher reporting rates and then in lower actual assault rates, um, I, I don't think that the military can handle this. I don't trust America's military to investigate the sexual assault of you know my daughter if I had one in the military and uh, and if I feel that way then um, then I think it is uh, and if enough American taxpayers feel that way then it, that that's just it it's going to be incumbent on the Congress to change the law I think I think a certain part of it is about compartmentalization too there's a New York Times article I read a couple months ago about a, a female cultural support team that was attached to Special Forces A teams in, in Afghanistan. And, you know, they're there to help with uh, female searches because in Islam society, men can't touch women. Um, and, and to deal with some of those situations that the gender of male just doesn't deal with very well. And so they mentioned that in the first six months of their 12-month tour, they were with an A team and everything went great. The, uh, the senior sergeant in the unit made sure they had everything they needed. If they had any complaints, it was actually addressed. And then six months, they changed teams. And the new team was entirely different. They were, they were misogynistic and controlling. And more than anything, they didn't let them do the mission the way that they felt they needed to do. And they were the experts. That's why they brought female soldiers to do this job. But you know, for, for guys like us, and especially for like you, Danny, having served with men only, that the guys in that, well, we'll call them the good SF team right now, they didn't see this. They didn't see this nastiness. So they may not carry that over to the next thing. If there's someone who is more likely to believe their comrades and not willing to look at a situation for the true shittiness it has, they're just going to dismiss it. I never saw that in the military. I, I, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I mean, and again, like you said, most military veterans have served with just women. I'm, I feel fortunate that I was an MP and we had females. I had females with us in basic training. Um, and, and, and when I hear about the way that, they're, they're, that those female soldiers are treated in non-integrated units, uh, it makes me want to murder somebody. Um, but I think that compartmentalization part of it is really important because some soldiers may see stuff and admit it. Some may see it and may not. But there may be a lot of people saying, I saw nothing like that. And if lots of people believe those guys, where do victims stand? Great points. Great points, Henry. Yeah. I like what you said about how a lot of guys, especially if they didn't serve with a lot of women or if they didn't personally observe some sort of sexual assault, will leave the military and then say, look, there's no problem. I didn't see it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Which is just so silly because every one of us only sees the war, the military, uh, through a straw at 10,000 feet, right? We don't, you know, we only see what we see. And, you know, for example, me, who am I to talk about my personal experience in the military when I served with like 
you know, a baker's dozen females in my entire career, and they were all on the staff of the battalion. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't know. Uh, it would be it would be it would be foolish of me to say that my experience was somehow indicative of the female experience with sexual assault. It's not. Um, you know, so that's that's one of the problems with veterans is sometimes we think because we're veterans, we we know from our own experience, we know everything. But really, you cannot extrapolate conclusions on broad issues from your own experience most of the time. Sometimes you can. Usually you can't. And that's why you've got to read books. That's why you got to read reports. That's why you got to interview people and and uh, and look at a broad range of experiences. So uh, this is an important issue. And, and it's really great that she's speaking out about it in a public forum. It is. Um, it is. That's what we need. No, that's what that's what female service members need. You know, seeing leaders up there at the higher echelons being willing to put themselves out there, that means far more than than anything you or I are going to do. Um, Absolutely. So RT reported this last week that an American drone was taken control of by the Iranian military, and that they tricked it into landing in Iran. Um, and this is from the Iranian news service FARS. Uh, seven to eight drones that were had constant flights over Syria and Iraq were brought under our control, and their their intel was monitored by us, and we gained their firsthand intel. So as I started googling the story, and RT was the only one who reported it, I found nobody else that had anything on it. As I started googling about the story, I found a report from the Intercept from a few years ago detailing how American and British intelligence agencies secretly monitored, monitored Israeli drone feeds. Quote, under a classified program codenamed Anarchist, the UK's government communications headquarters, or GCHQ, worked with the NSA systematically um, targeting Israeli drones from a mountaintop on the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. Um, GCHQ files provided by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden included a series of quote, anarchist snapshots, thumbnail images from videos recorded by drone cameras. Um, in essence, U.S. and British agencies stole a bird's eye view from the drones. So the article discusses more about how the U.S. has monitored Israeli drone signals in the past, possibly to dissuade use of Israeli weapons against innocent civilians in the Gaza Strip, but I'm not holding my fucking breath. Um, it made it very clear that though many of the drones operated um, excuse me, it made it very clear that many of the drones operated by militaries around the world are vulnerable to having their data intercepted by adversaries. Danny, we've covered drones in the past. They're looked at as a, a less risky use of firepower. Um, how would it look to you that our high power drones the world over could be possibly manipulated or controlled by our enemies? Yeah, I've been waiting for this to a certain extent. I, I've been talking about drones now for a decade, which you know is too late. I should have been on it even earlier. But I've always said that um, be careful the precedents you set, right? Um, I was just writing about the Cold War in my next history piece, and um, I'm, I'm I just devastated. I just berate Harry Truman. Uh, because he set the terrible precedent of not declaring war in Korea, of not going to Congress, right? And every president has followed him. So I, I would say the same applies to drones. I've been saying, be careful what precedent you set. America has ignored me, of course, ignored people in, at the intercept, and set the following precedent, which is this. We can fly our drones anywhere, anytime, through anyone's sovereign airspace, if we determine that it's in our security interest. That's the, right? That's what we've done. Yep. 
And so I've been saying, whoa, how are we going to react when other countries get drones and try to do the same thing? And what I should have been asking is, hey, even before we get to that level, and we're almost there, what are we going to do when motherfuckers in this cyber world of ours figure out how to manipulate our drones mm-hmm. and you know sabotage operations or use them against us? Look, we started this. You know what I mean? Like the minute we decided that because there's no pilot, we have the right to go anywhere, anytime and kill anyone, we've been asking for this. Mm-hmm. If I was Iran, of course I'd be trying to take over American drones. Are you kidding? Because in their mind, we might fucking try a regime change by decapitating the regime with a fucking drone. Why should they not assume that? Everything we've done has been aggressive with Iran since 1979. It doesn't mean that Iran's innocent. It just means we've been aggressive. Well, you can actually say since 1953 when we overthrew their democratically elected government in Mozambique. But I digress. Drones. Yeah, big problem. Um, what are we going to do about it? Well, of course, there'll be an escalation of cyber uh, threat reduction and then new threats and then new defenses, and this will go on and on and on. Um, but what the world really needs is a Geneva Conventions sort of addition that covers drones. This is just how it works. Anytime there's a new weapon system, whether it was you know the plane, the tank, using gas, and eventually nuclear weapons, whenever there's a new addition to the battlefield, the, the collective nations of the world have to come to some sort of agreement on what the proper use is, what the left and right limits are. And right now, America has for a long time had what we might call a drone monopoly on the technology. And so we've been just doing as we please willy-nilly with our drones. Um, but that's no longer going to be tenable when the following two things happen. One, what you just mentioned in the headline, they, they start taking over our drones and manipulating them. And two, they start developing their own drones that get into our airspace or the airspace of our allies. Um, once that happens, and it's already happening, then, uh, then you know the jig is up, right? And it's time for some sort of international convention that figures out what the acceptable rules for drone use are going to be, just like we had to do when the airplane Right, the piloted airplane first became a factor in the you know mid nineteen teens during the First World War. So, in keeping with the uh, with the drone theme for a minute, um, I want to take a second to talk about recent airstrikes in Somalia. The Nation reports that Africom, the U.S. military's Unified Africa Command, is the only actor in the region who has admitted to any airstrikes whatsoever. But they followed the Trump model of only declaring military actions when asked about them specifically. A good example would be that right now, um, neither AFRICOM, nor the CIA, nor the National Security Council will give any criteria, any of those, of of when they're going to strike and why. Um, Here's a little bit from the nation. In March of last year, 13 NGOs, including the ACLU, and the Human Rights Clinic at Columbia Law School released a statement criticizing the lack of information on the use of armed drones and other lethal force by the Trump administration. Uh, We are deeply concerned that the reported new policy combined with this administration's reported dramatic increase in lethal operations in Yemen and Somalia will lead to an increase in unlawful killings and civilian casualties. Now, in March 2017, the New York Times reported that, quote, President Trump had signed a directive that designated parts of Somalia as areas of active hostilities for at least 180 days. Um, This designation granted AFRICOM greater flexibility to launch strikes in those regions. During most of President Obama's time in office, suspected members of Al-Shabaab 
could only be targeted if they were judged to be threats to the United States. The new directive allowed AFRICOM to kill anyone deemed to be a member of Al-Shabaab, and it requires less coordination between military and intelligence agencies before a strike could take place. So just in 2019, new, uh, the think tank New America has reported they think it's at least 252 people have been killed in approximately two dozen airstrikes in Somalia. That means that President Trump, in, in doing that, he, he's already passed President Obama's single-year drone strike record in these first three months of 2019. In addition... Congratulations, Mr. Trump. Yep. Great award for you. And in addition, there's believed to be approximately 500 U.S. Special Operations Forces in Somalia right now as well. Yeah, but it's no big deal because Congress authorized that through a new authorization for the use of military force, right? Yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah. No, that didn't happen. But Congress has oversight, right? They're holding hearings about Somalia at least, right? Nah. Oh, wait. No. Hold on. Shit. Wait, what did, you, what did it say again? He, can you read me the language again? It just fascinates me how they, they said they declared that for a certain amount of time Somalia is what? What was the phrase? An area of active hostilities. Okay, oh man, I love American euphemisms. An area of active hostilities. That raises some questions for me. Um, an area, okay, so the whole country then, I guess that's what they mean by area, so we've got to break every word down, of active, active meaning ongoing, I suppose, um, as a, I don't know what, as opposed to dormant, I don't, I don't know what that means, and then hostilities. With whom? Yep. That's my question. With whom? Who's the enemy? Um, how does that enemy directly threaten the United States? What role does the United States have ethically or strategically, right? Yeah. And what outcome are we expecting from American involvement in the hostilities? What do we hope to achieve, and is it achievable? Right? See all those questions I just raised? Right? Those are like five questions that every congressman should have already asked. And the fact that they haven't, shame on you. Shame on you. I'm sitting on my motherfucking couch. I didn't even read the article you're talking about. I mean, I read a lot of others, but I didn't, right? I didn't read this article, but the truth is I came up with those five questions, and I don't think they have an answer to any of them. I don't. I do not think that they can show that al-Shabaab, at least the ground foot soldiers okay, of al-Shabaab, which is really an internal local insurgency, they, that they can't show that al-Shabaab is a direct threat to the United States. Not to say that al-Shabaab does not have a wing. Okay, it does not have a wing that does t talk about attacking the United States and has actually plotted some attacks. That's what they have. The question is, how successful are they? Uh, how existential is the threat? And is the use of more American force and more American ground troops either more or less likely to increase those attacks? I would argue it's more likely to increase the attacks. Left well enough alone, al-Shabaab really wants to own, you know, Somalia. They want to own Mogadishu. Now, I don't particularly want them to control Mogadishu, even though it's a shithole. Uh, I feel bad for the people living under al-Shabaab because it's a fucking brutal organization. But in the end, it's going to be a Somali decision, right? It, 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 the Somalis are either going to choose to uh, live under the regime of al-Shabaab or they're going to fight back, right? The provisional government is going to fight back. That doesn't mean you can't provide any aid if you determine that it's in the interest of the United States. It's just massive airstrikes? What? Massive drone strikes? Yeah, those have never pissed people off before, right? Those have never created more terrorists than they killed. You can't kill your way out of the fucking Somali civil war. You cannot. You can't. When 18 American soldiers were killed, you know, on October 3rd, I believe, 1993, in the Black Hawk Down incident, between airstrikes and M4 rifle fire, I mean, estimates are that in the low thousands of Somali deaths. 
and it didn't change a goddamn thing on the ground. It didn't change a goddamn thing. So killing a few hundred Al-Shabaab members, and by the way, their families and civilians too, because let's not forget that drones are imprecise like any other weapon of war, okay? any other indirect fire. The thought that this is somehow going to create an outcome that looks like victory or looks like peace in Somalia is so much fantasy. It's so much fantasy. It's, 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 it's the mythical thinking that has got us into this mess, into this mess. Congress, ask some of the questions. Fuck, ask better questions than I came up with on my couch. Do your fucking job. Like Bill Belichick says, I'm sick of the Patriots. But like he says, do your job. So, Danny, have you ever heard what the Somalis call the anniversary of the, the Mogadishu battle? I haven't, but I can't wait to hear. The Day of the Rangers. Ah, interesting. So, or is it maybe just Day of the Ranger? But either way, yeah, we, uh, we got a, a horrific battle named for us. Yeah, and it didn't change a thing. Not a thing. You know. And that's the tragedy, you know, you know, 25, what is it? 25 years later, you know, can the families of those killed in Somalia, can they really explain what, what it was all for, what it was all worth? You know, nope. of course they can, of course they can. And, 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 and my hearts are with them for it. You know, this isn't about saying their sons did something wrong per se. It's just that they were on the wrong end of a muddled policy, just like so many other veterans. And this fucking tragedy. Yeah. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do it all. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone who you might think could be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and the violence inflicted by some of those same minorities around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect. Please share this with them. But sharing our episodes is just one of the many ways you can support the podcast. In addition, there's Patreon where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping BT, Danny, and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of right now. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Matthew Ho, Will Arenz, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, James Obar, Adam Bellows, and Eric Phillips. Your contributions are so helpful to us. Thank you all so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Teespring. The great Bill Kropinski did an amazing job helping us design our first t-shirt, which you can find at teespring.com forward slash stores 
forward slash Fortress on a Hill. And if you use the promo code Militarism, you get free shipping. 22 bucks for an amazing t-shirt, and you get to support the podcast. And speaking of that, let's get back to the podcast. So we haven't talked about Venezuela yet, Danny. I, I, I think we ought to we got to give the people what they want. Um, Do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know they're so effing demanding. They're not as demanding as you and I are of Congress, but they're demanding. Yes. Um. So the U.S. has a long history with regime change in Venezuela, um, beginning in. 1998 with economic sanctions and then followed by a coup attempt against Hugo Chavez in 2002, neither of which were successful. Um, The country runs on a socialist economy, having nationalized its oil reserves under Hugo Chavez for the benefit of Venezuela's citizens, something American corporations loathe as they have much less chance to make money off of Venezuela's resources. Both Chavez and the current president, Nicolas Maduro, were elected in free and fair elections in Venezuela. The most recent election was actually even monitored by the Jimmy Carter Center, and they came to the same result. Um, They declared it as one of the most open and free elections in all of South America and indeed the world. Um, Both Chavez and Maduro are deeply beloved by the Venezuelan people. Um, as they both believe the assets of the Venezuelan government should be for the benefit of the people of Venezuela and not pad the accounts of American oil executives. So there's several different narratives the U.S. wants us to believe in terms of regime change for Venezuela. First, the ongoing theme of a, of a humanitarian disaster, that the people of Venezuela need humanitarian aid, um, and it has been one of the strongest among those being used for uh, being used to call for regime change in the international community. Humanitarian aid, let's get them aid. Um, now, there are starvation and medicine problems in Venezuela right now, but they weren't produced by Venezuela. Between economic sanctions from the U.S., which have led to hyperinflation throughout the Venezuelan economy, any economic crisis noted is one fueled by, if not entirely caused by, this notion of regime change. Max Blumenthal, um, a great foreign policy writer, and uh, he's at the Gray Zone Project and on the podcast Moderate Rebels, he spent a few weeks down in Venezuela producing videos showing what's really going on down there. He went up to local residents in Caracas and asked them why they were waiting in line. He visited local stores and malls to show what's available to buy. Um, bottom line on the humanitarian side, America and its partners did this, not Venezuela and not fucking socialism. Okay. So our next, our next line of propaganda here, Danny, democracy. Okay. America wants to establish democracy. Let let me, let me, (laughs) sorry. Let me, let me just jump in on each real quick. Like, so I don't forget. So really briefly. So your first thing is the humanitarian aid, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, here, here, you know, you, everything you said is fucking it's dead on, right? It's appropriate. Um, some other things we know. Uh, they're getting humanitarian aid. You know where they're getting it from? Russia, China, and India, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, you know it would help. You know it would help a lot more than getting like 20 million of American humanitarian aid in there would be unfreezing the billions of dollars that we have frozen in our account simply because we don't like their socialist government, or 
uh, ending embargo and sanctions against Venezuela, which, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, contribute exponentially more than the limited humanitarian aid we're trying to give them. Look, when America gives humanitarian aid, when any country gives humanitarian aid, there are usually strings attached, okay? Russia and China, too. It's not like we're the only evil ones. And Maduro knows, because we've said it, that we literally don't even agree that he's the president anymore. Nope. Like, we're, we're involved in an ongoing coup. Call it a soft coup. Call it whatever you want. It's like a slow-moving coup. And, uh, yeah, so I would be skeptical of American aid. Um, and I would say, hey, hey, how about you unfreeze my assets? I can use that to buy bread for my people. And uh, so anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Continue, please. Well, they dropped that. I think they said it was $20 million in aid up against $38 billion in sanctions. I, I don't even have the words to, to parse through that bullshit. Um, how, are you, how are you going to save uh, an economy and a society 38 billion down with 20 million in wheelchairs and strollers and other medical stuff? There was no medicine in it either. They didn't, that, the stuff that got burned on the bridge, they, they didn't even put any medicine in it. It was all um, hard stuff. So, okay, so next democracy. America wants to establish democracy in Venezuela. That's the big ticket item on the USA Mark Conveyor Belt, this idea of American freedom given to those who clearly need a better kind of government. A diplomatic cable on U.S.-Venezuela policy from 2006, written by then U.S. Ambassador to Venezuela, William Brownfield, discusses the use of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, to highlight the suffering of the Venezuelan people under Chavez and later Maduro to destroy their bases within the Chavismo movement, as many Chavistas adamantly support Venezuela's socialist government, therefore attempting to rob Chavez and Maduro of their most valuable uh, supporters. Here's a little quote that they had in this, in this diplomatic cable under the title of civic engagement. One effective Chavista mechanism of control applies democratic vocabulary to support revolutionary Bolivia, uh, Bolivarian ideology. OTI has been working to counter this through a civic education program called Democracy Among Us. This interactive education program works through NGOs and low-income communities to deliver five modules, separation of powers, rule of law, the role and responsibility of citizens, political tolerance, and the role of civil civil society. Separate civic engagement programs in political tolerance, participation, and human rights have reached over 600,000 people. Yeah. The democracy argument is interesting because like the Carter Center said, the elections have generally been pretty positive. And every time there's been a popular election in the last, you know, 20 or so years since the Chavista revolution of like 98, right, when he swings into power, um, whenever the people are given a choice, about two thirds of them pick the socialists. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why do they do, why do they do that? Well, first of all, cause it's their fucking choice and they can do whatever the fuck they want. And you don't get the judge as long as they're not hurting you America. Right. And like Venezuela presents like basically no threat to the United States in any meaningful or existential way. Right. So let them be. Socialism is a fucking viable form of government. Some of our allies are essentially socialist, right, if we're honest about the European states, even mm-hmm. some in NATO. Um, so we only say it's, that they're not democratic mainly because they're socialist, and we hate that word, and we use it as like a bludgeon against our enemies, right, like as a tool with which to bludgeon them. Um, the second thing that we have to recognize is, do you know what Venezuela has that America also has? We have so much in common, a race problem. 
That's right, a race problem. Venezuela has been run since independence almost exclusively by whiter, more um, Spanish, you know, pure Spanish European ancestry folks. They tend to have the most money. They own the businesses, right? They've tended to be the political leaders, but they're only about a third of the population. Whereas um, Maduro and before him, the more popular Chavez, uh, are, tend to be from a darker skinned mestizo, mixed black, mixed Indian, mixed Spanish ancestry. They make up about two thirds of the people. So the one third, which is led by this, um, what's his name, the uh, the guy that says he's president now that the United States is backing. Oh, one what? Um, yeah, right, Guaido. Um, you know, he represents like the white people. Okay, so this is a race thing as well as an economic and an ideological thing. And but the reality is they can't win a real election. They can't. They can't because since '98, the Chavistas, you know, and the socialists essentially, which is one and the same, are going to keep winning for the most part. So um, that's part of why the military has stayed local, has stayed loyal to Maduro. Um, no matter, look, Uncle Sam thinks, and in this case, it's Donald Trump. But it, I don't know how much different it would have been under another Hillary Clinton would probably just as bad. Uncle Sam thinks that. We have so much power, or we should have so much power in Central and Latin America and South America, that if we say someone else is president, it just happens. You, you know what I mean? Poof. Like, America's like, well, no, we agree. Guaido's president. You know, it's like, well, that, that's illogical. There's problems with that. Well, we say it, so it just becomes so, but it doesn't. We don't have that power. We don't. We think we do. In the past, we did. You know how we got that power? By dropping Marines. That's how we used to overturn elections, okay? We used to literally invade countries or send the CIA to, like, train a guerrilla or terrorist organizations to overthrow these regimes. Unless we're willing to do that, and it sounds like Trump's keeping that on the table, by the way, uh, military intervention. Look, if we don't do that, we only have so much leverage, and, and it's not enough to overturn the popular will of the people. What the people want is they want a more populist, uh, more socialist. Uh, government. Now, they may not be as happy with Maduro as they were with Chavez, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that the economy has faltered. It hasn't faltered just because it's socialist. It's faltered because oil prices have dropped. Okay, Under Chavez, oil prices were high. Venezuela is an oil economy. Okay, And so when, when oil prices are high, it's just like in Russia. When natural gas and oil prices are high, they're, they're affluent. right? They're, they're flush with money. And when, they're, when, when the oil prices drop like they have, then, they, then they're hurting. Okay, So that's why Maduro is less popular largely. Um, it's, it's not necessarily a reflection of the system of governance as it is global oil prices, which is a problem with having an economy that's sort of single – sector oriented that's why diversification of the economy is important and something we should be pressing in Venezuela but helping them with rather than trying to overturn their preferred form of government absolutely absolutely when uh, when Chavez cut down the portion of Venezuelan oil profits that was given to multinational corporations after he was elected the US regime change contraption put a bullseye firmly on him and his government Telling multinational corporations to fuck off is kind of like a regime change horse in the bed. Once a country or leader does it, assuming that they're not one of the huger ones, um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's done. It's, it's just it, – and, and the whole Monroe Doctrine thing that Bill Maher mentioned recently, talking about how you know that they're, Venezuela is still in our, quote, sphere of influence. How fucking dumb is that, Danny? What right do we have to tell people that even next door – don't have the right to live the way they want to. Uh, I love the phrase sphere of influence because it brings back my favorite like mental game 
It's called. You ready for it? I'm gonna make a fucking game show out of Go it. Go for it's it. Called what? would we say if Russia did it? That's right. That's the game. <laughs> and, and when we talk about spheres of influence, we're like, yeah, Venezuela is in our sphere. Venezuela is like a fucking more than a thousand miles away. Yeah. It's in our hemisphere. But when Russia like meddles in elections or, or, or even tries to intervene in any way on countries that fucking touch it, like their version of Canada and Mexico, we lose our shit. Yep. We lose our shit. Like, Ukraine was part of Russia for a long motherfucking time, like hundreds of years. Now, I'm not saying it should still be, but when Russia gets involved in Ukraine, we're, like, ready for nuclear war. Mm-hmm. We're like, it's a new Cold War, guys. Fucking, you know, batter up the hatches, get the army ready, get the nukes on alert. It's time to go. Putin's a monster. He's trying to take over the world. It's like, well, when we do it in the Caribbean and Venezuela, and suddenly it's a sphere of influence. If we're allowed a sphere of influence, what about the Russians? What would we say if the Russians did it? What would we say if it was Russia doing the same thing in a country a thousand? I don't know how far Venezuela is. Let's say a thousand miles. I think it's more. Let's say it's a thousand miles. Name a country that's a thousand miles from Russia. Fucking India. If Russia started fucking around in India, we would lose our fucking minds. Mm-hmm. We have lost our minds. We went to war in Vietnam because we we wrongly thought the Russians were involved. They barely were. Okay, they provided some weapons and such, but they were less involved than we were. They didn't put troops on the ground. We still, fifty thousand Americans died. Because we thought Russia might be more involved than they were. It's crazy. It, it, it's, it's a total lack of context. One more thing about this. Uh, I love this. I was listening to Democracy Now!, right? Democracy Now! podcast. Amazing, amazing. Amy Goodman, she's the best. Okay, I'm in love with her. Let's all listen. Okay, Democracy Now! plays this clip of Mike Pompeo like yesterday. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Jesus Christ, that's painful to say, right? Guy shouldn't be fucking... The guy should be fucking elected dog catcher in fucking Skokie, Illinois. Like, okay, but he's the secretary of state, right? Okay, cool. He says, quote, Cuba is the real imperialist in Venezuela. Because, like, (laughs) you know, Maduro's people are saying that America is being imperialist because we are, because we have a fucking 200-year history of military intervention, coup starting, and imperialism in Latin America, right? So they rightfully are like, hey, America's getting involved and it's a neo-imperialism. Pompeo's like, I know you are, but what am I? Pompeo's like, we're not imperialists. Cuba's imperialist. Cuba? Cuba's a little tiny island 90 miles from the United States. Cuba's been under fucking international embargo from the United States and some of its allies like since the communists took over, since Castro took over. Cuba is the real imperialist? If Cuba tried its hardest, it couldn't even come close to the level of leverage that the United States military and the United States economy has. It's ludicrous. You know what? Cuba does get involved. Cuba sends more humanitarian aid, sends more doctors. You know what like, the number one international export of Cuba is? It's doctors. Because hmm. their socialist healthcare system is fucking phenomenal. They, send, they have more doctors trained than they need in Cuba. So they send them all over the world, especially Latin America, but all over the world, including Africa, to these poor-ass countries. And they like increase health outcomes out there. Now, don't get me wrong. They're not doing this just out of the kindness of their hearts. They're trying to, like, you know, get some, you know, pro-Cuban, you know, goals met and, and people to like Cuba, maybe to trade with them. I mean, there's always more to it than just humanitarian. But the reality is imperialism, Cuban style, is like sending doctors. I mean, they send soldiers occasionally during the Cold War to Africa. Don't get me wrong. But it's usually just to, you know, balance against the apartheid racism in South Africa that we were supporting. So, I digress, but the bottom line is, come on, Mike Pompeo, you're going to make Cuba the villain? 
That's fucking insane. It's insane. The mismatch between the United States and Cuba. Look, when you say Russia's imperialist, at least we can like have an argument. Oh, maybe they are, maybe they're not. Cuba, give me a fucking break. <laughs> intellectual dishonesty in that statement is just baffling. Anyway, sign up, kids. Sign up to come on. What would Russia do? It's going to be a great. It's going to be a great game show. It's going to be big in Japan. Just, just yep. wait. Yep, yep. It's been it's been interesting to watch the desperation of some in government trying to to make this Venezuela stuff go through. The 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 one that I found really hilarious but also really disturbing was Marco Rubio tweeting a before and after picture set of Muammar Gaddafi, one that showed Gaddafi in good health and with the other showing his face covered in blood as how his after he was about to be lynched by um after Hillary Clinton's humanitarian vacation to Libya. But sure Let's keep pretending that America has good intentions with, quote, sending aid. The, and, and, and the thing is, is, as you mentioned, there's a lot of criticisms you could make of the Maduro regime. There, there are lots of them. But none of them are things that we should go bomb the country back to the Stone Age about. Um, and and with, the, with the burning aid on the truck, to pretend that America legitimately wants to help, there must be actual offers and possibility to help. This isn't that. So I have a question here from uh, Edward Light, and he mentioned about, he asked, this humanitarian aid that the U.S. was trying to deliver to Venezuela, um, who is driving the trucks, how many trucks, what's in them, has anyone idea the drivers or interviewed the drivers or leaders, for uh, lack of a better term, who are these people, what group are they affiliated with? So to partly answer that question, I have a little clip here from Mint Press News um, that breaks it down really succinctly. The U.S. used security concerns to justify invading Iraq in 2003. It used humanitarian concerns to justify bombing Libya in 2011. And it used humanitarian concerns repeatedly to justify the ongoing bombing and occupation of Syria. Washington wants to replace the socialist Maduro government with the right-winger Juan Guaido, who has publicly stated his intention to privatize Venezuela's vast resource wealth, the U.S. is going to use humanitarianism the same way it has in the past to make this change. In fact, Elliot Abrams, the current U.S. envoy to Venezuela, sent weapons to the anti-government Contra rebels in Nicaragua in aid shipments where weapons were hidden among food and medical supplies. The unfolding scandal became known as the Iran-Contra scandal. This is probably why Trump appointed Abrams to oversee the Venezuela coup. He's got a lot of experience using humanitarian aid as a Trojan horse for regime change. As far as this latest aid package goes, it's pretty clear that it's not about aid. Well, look, the aid is going to get through. And I think ultimately the question is whether it gets through uh, in, in a way that he's cooperative with or in a way that he's not. This aid is so good, it actually has to be forced on people. We have to ask ourselves why the U.S. is so desperate to get this relatively small $20 million aid package into Venezuela when it's upholding a sanctions regime that has cost Venezuela upwards of $38 billion. $38 billion minus $20 million is $37,980,000,000. In other words, this aid, if it even is aid, is insignificant compared to the damage the sanctions have caused. The sanctions regime prevent countries and companies from doing business with and lending money to Venezuela, which catalyzed the massive devaluing of the Venezuelan currency, the Bolivar. So the economic crisis in Venezuela is a direct consequence of the sanctions. Venezuela wouldn't need aid if the sanctions regime were simply lifted. Danny, 
give us give us the the, the one minute breakdown on Elliot Abrams, if you don't mind. All right, one minute on Elliot Abrams. <laughs> um, I, I won't the, time thesis. Down. Yeah, the thesis is that Elliot Abrams is the worst possible choice to be U.S. envoy to Venezuela. Why do I say that? Um, Elliot Abrams is an indicted um, and convicted criminal. Um, he was pardoned by um, the uh, George H.W. Bush administration, I believe, um, for his role in the Iran-Contra scandal. Okay, So back when he was uh, a middling public official in the Reagan administration, he helped, you guessed it, against law, against American and international law, he helped sell uh, weapons to Iran, which was supposedly our enemy. He was involved in a war with our supposed ally, Iraq, at the time. Uh, and then he took the money which was not on the books because this was all done secretly um, without informing Congress and took the money. And then um, what he did with it was, uh, you know, funneled that money to uh, the Contra rebels in Nicaragua, which was a right wing, really terroristic organization that committed war crimes, just just staggering war crimes uh, to the number of to somewhere around 100,000 deaths, most of which were civilians in Nicaragua uh, at the hands of the Contra. So that's Elliot Abrams. Right. And, and of course, he lies about it. And he gets perjury charges and. Yada, yada, yada. He's one of the people, along with Ollie North, who is um, convicted, right? And then, of course, pardoned by the vice president when he became president, which is George H.W. Bush. Not the finest hour, okay, of gentleman George. Um, that's Elliot Abrams, okay? Um, he's been wrong. He's been on the wrong, the wrong side of history on every major issue in Latin America. He's been on the right-wing um, authoritarian side of every issue. And he was wrong about Iraq. And of course he played some role in the George W. Bush administration. Right. So, uh, he's a fucking monster is what he is. That's, that's the short answer. And I guess I'll leave it at that. That's probably only about 90 seconds. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. And the, um, I know they found, I think one or two of the humanitarian aid shipments to Venezuela have contained, um, arms, uh, AR 15s or something similar. And that's was specifically his specialty back in the day was helping people, helping USAID or another NGO that's very America friendly, hide weapons and other things that shouldn't be getting shipped in humanitarian aid like ever. That old trick, you know, the old guns, the old guns in the gravy trick, you know, the old hide the weapons in the rice trick. You know, I'm so glad America's in that business, you know. What a fucking nightmare. Elliot Abrams. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Really? You couldn't find anybody else? It's like if you were trying, right? Tell me I'm wrong. If, if, if you were legitimately trying to pick the worst person, the least appropriate person, It'd be him. wouldn't it be Elliot Abrams? It'd be I him. mean, I guess Ollie North would be just as bad. I don't know. But he's so busy working at Fox News now, right? He's been totally exonerated. He has a fucking news show i think so or at least he's a common contributor so you know there's no consequences there are no consequences but no not for not for right-wing republican neoconservatives there are no consequences like fucking paul wolfwitz and and these lunatics still getting on tv like we still asked them we were like so you've been wrong about everything ever but can you tell us what to do in this next incident like it's amazing like they should literally preface every question to Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and all these guys. Like when they come on TV, and it's not just them; it's Richard Pearl. It, it's the whole gang of fucking loony birds who brought us the greatest disaster of the 21st century, which was the Iraq invasion, right? And and they're all veterans of the greatest disaster of the 1980s, which was the Nicaragua War. <laughs> you know, it's like these people are recycled. 
time yep. and again to just give us bad advice. And we just take it. We're like a battered wife. We're like, it's like we put Elliot Abrams in charge and he fucks it all up. And we're like, well, if we just acted better, he wouldn't hit us. Like, are you fucking insane? Now, when you time, put a fucking abusive monster in charge, this is what happens. Yep. This is what happens. American people stop being a fucking battered girlfriend. Stop being a fucking enabler and fucking vote these people out of office and, and, and demand that better people be put in charge of serious issues like Venezuela. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we don't we don't need recycled neocons. There's still plenty of new ones getting created. It, 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 it's, <laughs> it's, no, it's 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 terrifyingly ignorant. And 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 that's the, one of the things that I don't get about so many other veterans, especially uh war on terror veterans is that they've all watched this you know you, you can go and see what's happening in the war you just left on the news but yet they still end up supporting the same bullshit at the end of the day still willing to say let's go to venezuela and take all their fucking oil you know we lost last time right you, you know a whole bunch of americans and other people died and we got nothing we got nothing out of it but you want to do it again okay it, it is. It, it, it's beyond lunacy, Danny. Yep. Well, it's, uh, right, doing the same thing you know, twice after you've already seen that it doesn't work is basically insanity, right? Yep. Einstein said something to that effect, and I'm, I'm fucking it up, but you get the point. It's crazy stuff, man. This whole Venezuela thing, I'll tell you what, my final point on it, you know, is uh, if we – I don't think we will. I, I, I'm actually moderately – for once, I'm a little bit um, optimistic. I think we probably won't intervene militarily. Um, I also wouldn't put it past us, by the way. Uh, if we do, if 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 the Trump administration, without going to Congress, because of course it'll be without going to Congress, um, if the um, if the United States military intervenes, I I would actually go so far as to say that members of the military need to start putting in their conscientious objector packets. Yep. And those of us who are no longer in the military um, have to get in the streets and have to literally stop traffic because this would be some of the most overt American imperialism, you know, in, in decades. And it has to stop. It's not our choice. The Venezuelans are not our enemies. Not. They're, they're not. And they are enemies. not our enemies. Yeah, Brigadier General Anthony Tata, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, according to Fox Business News, like fucking, you know, a couple weeks ago, talked about how a military intervention in Venezuela may begin very soon, you know. Um, he said, I think in the next two weeks, this is like two weeks ago, uh, we are going to see this thing bubble up and foment, he told Trish Reagan from Fox Business News, you know. The, the aid has to get in there, and importantly, President Trump has made this sort of a line in the sand. Oh, I love lines in the sand. So he needs to do something that will affect or he needs to set the conditions that will affect the transition of Juan Guaido to power. Shut the fuck up, General Tata. You're a one-star general and you're going to fucking talk about – tell the president what he's supposed to be doing right now like while you're a serving general? Don't be wrong. Like we all have opinions, but you're going to give an interview saying that U.S. military intervention may happen soon? Shut the fuck up. Who are we to decide whether Guaido or fucking you know, Maduro is president? That's, that's for the fucking Venezuelan people. We have to stop with imperialism that shit was out of style in 1890 you know what i mean we're still walking around with fucking shoulder pads and fucking you know blowout haircuts like we're so fucking out of style like imperialism like that shit's evergreen for america we think it's like it's still cool it's like it's not 
fucking cool, dude. It's it, it's not. It's like bell bottoms in the seventies. Like just quit it, man. It's over. Okay, it is over. But unfortunately, it's not. And um, and we're still playing the neo imperialist game, and it has to stop. And I will tell you, um, seriously, we have to dissent. We have to refuse as a people if our government tries to take us to war in Venezuela. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I will not